Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. The scripture reading today is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Please turn to Ephesians 6 in your Bible or follow along on the sermon notes handout. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, well, we are doing a series on what was called the armor of God, and This whole series does raise, actually, a big problem. And it's a problem that particularly, I think, stands out for us on this Thanksgiving weekend. You see, Paul has been teaching us, as you've been seeing the last few weeks, he's been teaching us to think about this Christian life and what it means to follow Christ in terms of the imagery of a war, in warfare imagery of armor, of swords, of fighting, of enemies, And in today's world, that can cause a lot of people to stumble. It's a problem within our world, and it's a problem on Thanksgiving Sunday because people are very aware in our world about what we might say is the connection between religion on the one hand and violence on the other and how these two things can often go together. And so there's been many books written, many discussions had, and many people would hold two main points. The first point being that religion causes violence and therefore religion in the world is actually a dangerous thing. And then the follow-up point to that usually goes something like this. If we only get rid of religion and we could just build our societies more upon secular values, then we would be moving our world toward peace. That's a big challenge. I think it's probably best captured in one of the most famous songs of all time here in our Western culture, going back a little ways, but everybody knows it, John Lennon's famous song, Imagine. Here's the lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people just living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Perfectly captures what I'm talking about. So if religion leads to violence and is so therefore dangerous, and if secular values would lead us toward peace, then you can see why many people, if this is the view they hold, would say, I want nothing to do with Christianity, And then when they come to a passage like the one we're looking at here, would say, all this warfare imagery, this enemies fighting imagery, this just feeds into that whole problem of religion causing violence and being a dangerous force in the world. So here's my plan for today. I'm going to approach this morning just a little bit different than I normally do. What I want to do, first of all, is to take about 10 minutes or so to deal with this objection, this problem, to try to kind of clear the decks, if you will, so that we can actually hear what the Apostle Paul wants to say. And then what I want to do is to look at the first piece of armor, which is what Paul calls the belt of truth. So my aim in the first little bit is to clear away misunderstanding 
and having cleared away the misunderstanding to gain understanding as to what the belt of truth is. And then, Lord willing, what I pray is going to happen this morning is that God will then cause our hearts to be filled and eventually bursting with thanksgiving later on in the message. But we got to get there first. Okay? So, let's begin. Let's call this mini sermon at one, shall we? And then we'll go into the, the real sermon. First of all, let's, let me give you four responses to this objection. And this is how the objection goes. As I said, religion leads to violence, whereas embracing secular ideals will lead to peace. And I want to make four points on this. Here's the first point I want to say. To an extent, Christians must agree. To an extent, Christians must agree. There simply is no question that historically people have used religion, and we'll just only speak of Christianity here, other religions too, but no question that historically some people in the name of Christ and in the name of Christianity, their religion has been used to force beliefs upon others, and this has led to violence. Now you can see how this would be easy to take place. If you believe you have the truth of all things, you can, they don't have to, but you can begin to feel superior to others who you believe do not have the truth. You can then look down on them, and then if they begin to oppose your viewpoints, if you have the power, you can then... You can judge them, you can villainize them, you can suppress them, and of course that can also lead to violence. Once you see someone else as a threat, if you have the means, you can eliminate the threat, and this is where a lot of violence has crept into history. So I think we have to simply begin by saying, to an extent, we have to agree that in history, religion has at times led to violence. In the second place, though, I want to say this. It is unfair to say that only religion has the potential for violence. The bigger point is any ideal, any view of truth has the potential to lead toward violence. When a society rejects God as its ultimate ideal, all it does is fills that void with some other ultimate ideal. If it's not God anymore, something else is going to fill it. And then from that new ideal, you begin to look down your nose at those who don't agree, to villainize them, to judge them, and then that can also lead to violence. And history is filled with examples of this as well. Go back to the late 70s. Think about Cambodia. There's Pol Pot and the great genocide of Cambodia. Millions of people killed, not in the name of religion or of God, but a different ideal. God was removed. The ultimate ideal was socialism. So they wanted to build a society built on socialism. And so then socialism was the ultimate ideal by which then it was justified to kill millions of Pol Pot's own people. Or think back, back a little bit further in history, the French Revolution. The French famously wanted to get rid of all religion and all God from their society and rather live for this idea of freedom or liberty. But, of course, what happened historically then is freedom became the new ultimate highest ideal, but people disagreed about what freedom should look like. And so people who held one view and held the power began to suppress and kill those who had different ideas of what freedom should look like within society. And so this then, the ultimate ideal of freedom or liberty, led towards violence. There's a famous incident in 1793, when Madame Roland went to the guillotine because she disagreed with the revolutionary elites over what freedom should look like. And so as she came up towards the guillotine, there was a statue there that was meant to personify freedom or liberty. And so she bowed before this statue and she said these very famous words, liberty or freedom, what crimes are committed in your name? So in the name of freedom... Violence was done to other people, and specifically to her at the guillotine. So what I'm arguing here is that it is false to say that only religion leads towards violence because history shows us that any ultimate ideal, whether socialism or freedom or any other ultimate ideal, can and has led towards violence. Let's go even further now. In the third place, I'll say this. Historically, secular values have also led to violence. Not just religion, secular values. So ponder on this for a moment. What would happen if John Lennon's dream in his song Imagine, what would happen if his dream came true? 
You don't have to guess. The 20th century is the greatest example of what happens when John Lennon's dream, imagine, comes true. We, can only, we only have to look at the two biggest, most famous atheistic countries and regimes in the 20th century being communist Russia and communist China. Here were two countries that explicitly were atheistic, remove all religion from society, and build a society upon their own secular values and what they perceive are the most important values. And what were the results of it? I mean, we don't have time to fully develop it. The short story is, within communist Russia, Stalin is credited, in a poor way, with 20 million deaths, most of his own people. So in the name of communism, 20 million people were killed. That's a staggering number. I mean, just try to comprehend that for a moment. We talk about 6 million Jews within World War II, which is horrific and terrible. 20 million in the gulags of Russia. Lest you think that's bad, it's nothing compared to what happened in China. A recent study was just done where they calculated, and did, well, it's a big study done on Mao Zedong, who of course is the founder of communist China and caused all of this in the early part of the 20th century, in the mid part of the 20th century. And now they're estimating that in communist China, 70 million people were killed in order to produce what is now China today. 70 million people, again, a nation built on not religion, get rid of religion, and build it on a different secular ideal, and the result was 70 million people. In other words, the worst mass murders in history, history utterly rejected religion and built societies on their own ideals. So the point here, simply to say, is that all ideals, whether religious or secular, have the potential to turn into violence and have often turned into violence. They can all be abused. It's because from a Christian point of view, it's the human heart that's the problem. The human heart is the one that can look down at others, villainize them, judge them, and eventually lead towards violence. So therefore, what we're at right now in my little argument, my little sermonette, four points, is that I'm trying to just cut the legs out under everything, level the playing field. Wherever religion causes violence, it should be confronted. Wherever secular values cause violence, it should be confronted and the human heart has caused a tremendous amount of violence throughout the history of the world. So we should not buy into the idea that somehow religion is the only thing that leads to violence, whereas secular ideals lead to peace. Historically, that simply is not the case. But here's the final thing that I want to say. True Christianity, that's the key word, true Christianity produces peace. Here's why I say that. Those... Uh, my emphasis here is on the word true. You get that, right? This is, this is where I'm trying to go. Listen to the sentence really carefully. Those who have committed violence in the name of Jesus have not done so because they took Jesus too seriously. It's because they didn't take Jesus seriously enough. Put it another way. Those who have committed violence in the name of Jesus did so not because they had too much Jesus in their life and that led them to violence, they didn't have enough Jesus in their life. And if they had more of him, they would never have done the things that they did. Here's why I'm saying that. Because true Christianity, and what is it? You can just go look at Jesus. Let's go right to the founder of the whole thing, shall we? Jesus' explicit commands, he explicitly commands his followers to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. He explicitly forbids his followers to ever extend the message of his kingdom through the use of force. He could not be more clear. That is true Christianity. Even more so, the message of true Christianity breaks any idea that you or I could feel superior to somebody else because somehow we have the truth. It breaks all of that kind of thinking because true Christianity begins with the idea that we're all sinners, every single one of us. It cuts the legs out from under everyone. No one can stand and say, I am greater than someone else because the message says, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all under judgment and there's literally nothing you can do to save yourself. No one is great, no one can boast, everyone stands condemned. 
But then the great good news of Christianity is God in his mercy and grace is going to save anyone who comes to Christ. That he sent his son into this world to save us from condemnation, and it's a gift. You can't earn it. You just receive it. Nobody can boast in a gift that has been given to them, can they? You can't boast. So within true Christianity, there is no room for boasting. There is no room for a sense of superiority. No room for judging other people as if I am somehow greater because it cuts the legs out of everyone. And then it says you're only saved by sheer mercy and grace. And when that mercy and grace goes deep into your heart, what it does is it creates a great sense of humility. It creates a great sense of thankfulness. Thanksgiving Sunday, I'm so thankful that God would have mercy on me. I cannot believe it. And if that's the heart that you have, you can never look down on anyone else. And you certainly could never try to enforce your views or commit violence against somebody who might disagree with you. That is the true, historic message of Christianity. And the best of Christians have always done this in their activism. Rather than violence, it's been activism. So, for instance, William Wilberforce, the one who is primarily responsible for abolishing the slave trade across the British Empire over his lifetime. If you read his books on what motivated him, it's crystal clear in the first paragraphs. His basic argument would be this. The British Empire does not understand true Christianity. It might claim to be, but it does not get it. And what we need is a true Christianity, a deep understanding of Christianity, and this would result in the abolition of the slave slave trade. That was his argument. First paragraphs. Martin Luther King called the white Christians of the South to a fuller embracing of Jesus, a fuller embracing as the means to end racism. So in summary, here's what I'm just trying to do as I clear the decks this morning and try to get rid of misunderstanding. Christianity can and has been abused in the past and has led to violence. But those who do so are not following their Lord and their Master. For Jesus himself, when he was being crucified by his enemies, prayed, Father, forgive them. And he calls his followers to do the same. So, that's my mini-sermonette number one. Hopefully, clearing out some of that misunderstanding on a very important topic today where Christianity is not even just tolerated within society, but is viewed as dangerous. And it's something I think we need to be very careful of and speak into as we move forward. And of course, we need to embody the peace of the Prince of Peace. So as we transition to our passage now, we've got to make the connection between what I'm doing in sermon number one and now sermon number two. You get two for one this morning. Right? It's Thanksgiving. Here's the question then. If Jesus is about peace, which I've been arguing, then why does Paul want us to think about Christian, living the Christian life in terms of warfare imagery? Why? Why would he make these connections? And this is where people stumble when they come to a passage like this. I don't want to, all this warfare imagery is what makes Christianity dangerous. Why is Paul doing this? Here's the answer. It's not that Paul glories in violence. Absolutely not. It's also not to encourage us to fight other people or ever to commit any form of violence against other people. Paul is crystal clear that the fight we're in is not with people. Crystal clear. Let's make this really clear. Let's just read exactly what his words are. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is against people. Our fight is not, I underlined it, I should have bolded it, put in all caps. Our fight is not against other people. So lest we again misunderstand, this is true Christianity. We do not fight other people Who's our fight against? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We unpacked this for three weeks. So if you're just joining us today, three weeks we just did on that. The unseen realm of which there are spiritual powers seeking our total destruction. This is our enemy. When you think of it this way, that our enemy is evil to the core and is seeking to destroy all of us. That's why Paul says, in this moment, 
warfare imagery is the only thing that we should be using. What do you expect them to use? We're fighting against an unseen realm of spiritual power seeking to destroy. What, you want to talk about playing together? No, that's not the, we need warfare imagery when we come to that kind of a picture. And the key to it all, Paul says, is we got to put on the armor that God gives to us. God has armor for us. He's going to give this armor to us. We must put on this armor. And if we do that, Paul says, you can stand. You can stand your ground in this battle and you will not be defeated. So that brings us then now to sermon number two as we look at this first piece of armor to put on. What is it? Let's look at it in verse 14. Stand, therefore, Paul says, in the first place, having fastened on the belt of truth. Fastened on the belt of truth. Now, let's ask three questions about this particular verse. What is the belt? What's he referring to here? Secondly, what does the belt refer to in real life, not just as a metaphor? And then how does putting on this belt, fastening on this belt, how does it, it us? How does it enable us to stand our ground and to not be defeated, all right? And then all this, I'm praying, is going to lead our hearts to thanksgiving and gratefulness this morning. So let's begin by asking in the first place, what is the belt? The image that Paul has in mind here as he's writing this passage is a Roman soldier who's fully got all of his armor on. That's the picture, an ancient Roman soldier fully dressed for battle. And the first piece of armor that he says we must put on is the belt. Now, if you have another version, if you grew up like I did for some time anyways, and we had the King James Version, some of you could probably quote it this morning. Here's some great old English for you. Ready? What is it? Who can quote it? Stand firm then, having your loins girt about with truth. Oh, let's bring that back, shall we? That is some good King James language. I don't know how we get that back into modern times, but gird up your loins. Whew, I don't even know. I got no comments on that. We'll just, we'll leave the old King James back in 1611 and we'll come up to our modern times. What in the world does that mean? Well, this ESV translation is capturing. You've got to fasten it on. That's what it's saying. Uh, gird up your loins. Here, here's what that means. In ancient times in the Roman era, uh, soldiers would, well, men in general, would wear a tunic. And basically it was a giant piece of cloth and it would have four holes. One for your head to go through, your arms, and then just one big one for your feet. So... Really? It was a dress, okay? So that's what it was. Guys, you've had trouble with that? Imagine you're wearing a house coat down to your feet. That'll help you a little bit better to connect with this. Ladies, feel free to think in terms of a, a dress that's a little more flowy. It can move around a little bit. It's not tight-fitting, but it flows around. So it's comfortable. It keeps you warm, all these kind of things. But a tunic is quite loose-fitting. And so if you're about to go into a fight, just imagine trying to run or fight wearing a house coat all the way tightened up or a long dress. That's going to be very difficult. Your movements are hindered. You can only move your legs like this far apart, you know? That's why I always love ladies running in high heels and it's the, you know, the, the, they can hardly move their, their knees, right? That, that's what you would be like. You are not going to fight well at all. You're going to be very hindered in your movements and you'll probably die in the battle. And so every Roman soldier also had what was called a girdle or a belt. Some good old words for you here, right? Here's an image of what it looked like. So you can see that it's got your traditional belt on it, and then you've got these parts that hang down. This, this is just meant to protect the private parts, let's be honest. Okay, that's why they're there. And then you have this, the belt that you're supposed to do. So to, ready? Learn, learn something together. To gird up your loins <laughs> meant you're about to go into battle. You take your tunic, you pull it up, you kind of wrap it around a little bit into kind of two pieces of cloth. You lift it up to here. Then you take your belt and you put it around so that now your tunic is up here and maybe like it's, you know, coming down to your thighs or something like that. But now it's no longer around your knees, no longer around your ankles. You've taken all the loose pieces of clothing and you fasten your belt around it. Now you can stretch. Now you can move. Now you can run. And now you're equipped for battle. So, putting on the belt, or girding up your loins, what a phrase, <laughs> both of those mean you are prepared and you're ready for action. That's what it means. It's no wonder then that putting on the belt of truth is the first thing Paul wants to talk about. There's not much use in talking about a sword and a shield and a helmet if you can't even run because you're wearing a long dress or a house coat, okay? So, that's the first thing. That's what the belt is. 
then that leads us now to the second and important place we got to ask this. What does the belt refer to? What's, why, why would Paul bring this up? Well, it's not any old belt. Paul's already defined it. He calls it the belt of truth. So you are to fasten truth around yourself, is what he's saying. God's truth. God's truth has revealed for us in his word. So in other words, you are to so take all the thoughts of your mind, which like loose-fitting clothing, you are to gather them up and they are to be fastened around you with truth. So all, all these loose thoughts. So here's, here's a loose thought. Is there a God? That's a big thought. That needs to have truth come into it. The Bible speaks to what if there is a God. Okay, what is this God like? I need to take all my loose thinking about what God may or may not be like, and I need to learn the truth so that I have got truth around me to protect me. Uh, what does it mean to live in this world? What is the meaning of life? What is right and wrong? H- how do I live in all these areas? What happens when I die? All these really important questions need to have the truth fastened around. So all we don't have little thoughts going off all over or hindering us. It all needs to be brought together. We're prepared. We're ready for action. We know the truth, not just in an intellectual way, but the truth has worked its way into every single part of us. So what does the belt refer to? I'll just put it like this in a sentence for us. To put on the belt of truth means to learn, understand, digest, and apply God's truth in all areas of life. So to put it on, if you want to just practically, what do you need to do? What Paul is saying is, if you want to stand in this battle, you need to learn truth. You need to be engaged in it, meditating on it. Your mind needs to take all your little loose thoughts and be gathered up. This is the most important thing going into battle is first to put on the belt of truth. So then that leads us to the third and the most important question, which is this. How does putting on the belt of truth enable us to stand against our adversary? we got to be able to answer this because if we can see how important it is, then we'll be motivated to put it on because we don't want to be destroyed. We want to be able to stand in this battle. So let me give you the answer, and I'll spend the rest of the time explaining it and applying it. Here's the answer. When you learn truth, it enables you to stand firm against the enemy's lies. When you understand the truth, you will navigate life well, you'll live rightly, you'll, do, you'll have hope, all these kind of things, because there are a lot of lies out there that are seeking to make you discouraged, fall into despair, live wrongly, turn away from God, all these kind of things. So this is why Paul says you need truth, because life is complex and we don't always understand things. We need to know the truth. So here's an illustration to help us understand it. There's a very famous uh, preacher from the 20th century named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was, his doctor is not like a PhD academic doctor. He was actually a medical doctor and a very famous one before he became a pastor and a preacher. One day he was on a train and he heard a great commotion in another car and so he came up to this car. There was a man uh, lying on the ground, uh, struggling all over the floor, turning color and frothing at the mouth. The people around all believe that this man was having a stroke or he's having a heart attack. And so based on these assumptions, these good and sincere people said, we need to stop the train. We need to get this man to a hospital immediately in order to save his life. But because he was a doctor, Lloyd-Jones saw the situation very differently. He came to a different judgment. He recognized that this man was just having an epileptic, epileptic seizure, which he'd probably had many other times in his life. He just had to go through it, and once he went through it, he would be perfectly fine. He would surely be very upset if they stopped an entire train and he woke up in a hospital bed and he knew all this happened because of him. He would not, he'd be kind of ashamed of that. He would not enjoy that at all. And so Lloyd-Jones stepped into the situation and with an authoritative voice told everybody it's unnecessary to stop the train and that this man is going to be perfectly fine. They doubted him initially, but eventually they, they became persuaded. And sure enough, his seizure ended. He got up and he was perfectly fine. So what we see in that little good illustration is the people were very sincere in their desire to help. They thought they understood the situation, but they did not understand it correctly. What changed everything was the voice of truth. Truth came into the situation, and when the truth was understood, the entire thing was viewed differently, 
and it was handled differently. That is such a good analogy for all of life and for this entire picture that we're looking at this morning. We do not always understand. We might be very sincere people, hold our beliefs very sincerely, but we can handle things all wrong and we can be wrong about a lot of things. What we need is the voice of truth. What we need is truth to speak into us. We need to put on truth so that we can know what's going on and how to handle it. Think about this just practically. You're in it. Well, this just, this just happened to me this morning. I'll be honest. When I came this morning, my heart was very heavy with numerous things, including Jimmy and numerous other things, and just not in a great place to do everything I have to do this morning. So I was just praying, Lord, I, I need this morning for the truth to break into me from some things I'm about to say in a few moments. I was praying through some verses that I'm going to read for you in a moment. So it was amazing. Even as we began to sing the songs that Corey selected for this week and the way the team played them, didn't they do a great job? We have tremendous, just let's give them a round of applause. Yes. The song, the lyrics. So if, uh, at first I thought, well, I'll just focus on the songs. I'll sing them, pray them through my heart. Uh, so, sometimes what happens to me is a single line will just kind of, oh, I needed to hear that truth. Today there was no single line. It was just the cumulative effect of line after line after line after line. So even the first song, first song kind of began generally. And then it was Christ has redeemed from us from all our sin. Cast all your burdens now on him. Okay, got that truth coming in. Lord, I'm gonna, Corey has given me, the team has given me that truth. Help it, they're helping me fasten that on right now. And then the song just goes on and eventually gets to the second coming of Christ. Who shall fall on bended knee? All creatures of our God and King and my my heart is lifted up. There's a day coming when Christ is going to return. What hope that will be. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. We're getting through that song. We're getting through the next song. It was just truth after truth after truth. And I just felt my heart, my heart's, uh, weight, the weightiness in my heart just be, feel a little more lifted, a little more lifted, a little more lifted. And it was just truth coming in. Doesn't that happen to you? Whether songs or a sermon you hear or Someone speaks a word of encouragement to you at an opportune time. That's truth that you're putting around yourself, which enables you then to stand and not give in to discouragement, to despair, to whatever it may be that you're about to give in to. It's the voice of truth. And the way the unseen powers are always working, according to this passage we're looking at, is to deceive us, to make us think in those moments there is no hope. This is a unique situation. How, how am I ever going to? Doesn't God care about me at all? All kinds of ways that we come in. They're just thoughts that we're having. But these thoughts are deceptive thoughts, and they lead us towards discouragement and towards despair, towards sin, towards all these types of things. But when we keep putting on truth, we start to see through the lies, through the deception. And when we see the truth, this is why Jesus said these words in John 8. He said, you will know the truth. And the truth's going to do something for you. What's it going to do? It's going to set you free. So I wasn't free this morning when I first arrived. Now my heart feels free. It was free because truth came in and set me free. And what is the truth that he's speaking of, Jesus? It's his own teaching. As Jesus himself says, I am the truth. How do you find truth? truth is Jesus Christ, that is God became a man. When you look at Jesus and watch him, you're watching truth in action with no lies. When you listen to Jesus uh, teach and preach, you are listening to truth itself speak and you're learning pure truth, not watered down, not messed up in any way. And when you learn that truth, you can see it through. So bring all this together. I said there were some lines that I was kind of praying through this morning, and they're lines from a, a great older hymn, and the hymn is called For All the Saints. Here's the lines. It's a bit of old English, but hopefully we'll get it. When the strife is fierce, the warfare long, life's really hard, it's going on forever, steals on the ear, not steals as in we, the way we think of it, comes to your ear, a distant triumph song. The distant song. There's a song in the distance that you hear when the war is going on. And when you hear that song, hearts are brave again and arms are strong. Alleluia, alleluia. So here's the picture. 
It's, it's an army fighting with their enemy. It's been a long battle. The battle's been going on for hours. And, and the enemy is winning this battle. And, and, and the good guys, their arms are getting weaker. They're, they're feeling like they're going to fail. They think they're going to be defeated. They're becoming discouraged. But all of a sudden in the distance, what, what's that sound? It's a trumpet. It's the neighboring king coming to your aid. They'd suddenly know that victory is now at hand because that king who's coming, his army is powerful. And there's no way we're going to lose this battle. The king's not even there yet. They just hear the sound of the trumpet. They hear the song way off in the distance. And just hearing that song, suddenly their arms become strong again. Suddenly they have strength to keep going. And the neighboring king's not even arrived yet. That is what this verse is talking about. When you put on truth, what happens for you is that you begin to be able to see through the enemy's lies. You know you are in a battle. It's a hard battle. Oh, but suddenly you hear the victory of Christ that one day will fully come. Maybe you hear of Christ being with you presently right now. Whatever the truth might be in that moment, suddenly hearts grow strong. Arms begin to be able to move and continue on in this great battle to stand. That's what happens when we put on truth, and that's why we constantly must be learning truth. For you never know how the enemy's attacks are going to come. You keep putting on the truth. Now, I could skip from here to the end and do some practical applications, which I'm going to do. But I want to do right now what I've done the last few weeks, and that is to get really practical because I want each week to help us to put this on. Practically speaking, kind of already done that, but I want to go even further. So each week we've been having some counseling sessions together, and today we're going to keep doing that, okay? So this is for my own counseling. I need this, and I'm going to guess that you're going to need it too. So what I want to do is talk about a very specific practical area where we can put on the belt of truth, show you how to do that, and we'll work this through, and it applies to every other situation in life but at least we'll apply it to this one. Before I get there, though, I want to give us an illustration, a story to help shape everything we're talking about. Again, maybe just help bring this whole message together. And you won't be surprised, this is series is called The Armor of God, as illustrated by The Lord of the Rings. So we're going to do another Lord of the Rings. And don't worry, when we're done this whole series, I won't do Lord of the Rings for a long time, okay? So not everyone likes it like I do, but most of you told me you do. So I think I'm in doing pretty well. All right, here, there's a scene in Lord of the Rings that I want you to remember for a moment, and it has to do with Theoden, the king of Rohan. And you remember he has a wicked servant named Wormtongue. And Wormtongue is the one who always comes to him and speaks lies into his mind. And you, you're speaking into his, his ear, always speaking lies to him. And King, uh, king Theoden, the lies are like a spell, and they come over him, and he begins to be consumed by this. In fact, he even ages prematurely. He, he becomes very uh, self-centered, uh, becomes angry and bitter with other people. He can't discern the lies, and he grows very old. Wormtongue keeps speaking into his ear. That is, until one day the voice of truth shows up. Gandalf, the good wizard, he enters the hall of the great, tank, the great king, Rohan, the king of Rohan, and Wormtongue immediately begins to verbally attack Gandalf, and Gandalf just has this great line. Remember, Wormtongue's supposed to be so great with words, and so this is what Gandalf says. He says, be silent. Keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. I have not passed through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a witless worm. That's some English, if you even caught it. That's so good, it's like... Wormtongue is struck down by Gandalf's sheer power, and then Gandalf approaches the king on his throne, who is antagonistic towards him because he's got this spell of lies over him. But Gandalf speaks and he says, Theoden, son of Thingol, <clears throat> too long have you sat in the shadows. I release you from the spell. And then with a great struggle, Theoden is gradually released, and with the power of the lies broken, he even begins to age backwards. He becomes more of a middle-aged man now. He is feeling like he's woken up from a dream as if he's been stuck under this dream, which he basically has been because he's been underneath this spell. And then Gandalf turns to him, and they smile together, and Gandalf says, breathe the free air again, my friend. Now take that image. There are many areas that the devil, the great worm tongue, has spoken lies into our world, 
and speaks lies into our lives. But today, what I want to do is take one specific area where he gets just about every single one of us, for sure, I, th- I don't know a person who would say they have not fallen captive to this spell at one time or another, and quite frankly, some of us have lived under this shadow and this spell for far too long. And what I'm praying this morning is that the Spirit of God would be the voice of truth and would release some of us from this spell, for we become enslaved and consumed. And the one issue that I want to address is the issue of bitterness. Bitterness towards other people for what they have said or done against us, and that bitterness slowly enslaves us, and like Theoden, it consumes us. So we all know the situations. You can think of your own life. Someone has offended you. They've done something to you. Maybe it's a family member. Uh, maybe it's somebody who was once your friend. Might be even be your spouse or your ex-spouse, a colleague perhaps. Something real has happened, and let's just say for the sake of the argument, what they did was truly wrong. What Wormtongue does, though, is he comes with his whispers, and he keeps whispering in your ear, so that rather than just processing that situation which you have to process, it stays with you, and it stays with you, and it stays with you. And what you do is you find yourself creating scenarios in your mind where you have that person in front of you, and you put them in their place, maybe even in the worst situations in your mind anyways, you physically attack them and beat them down because your anger is so great. But bitterness starts to consume you. And you know that it's doing that If much time has passed and you're still replaying it constantly in your mind, like Theoden was consumed, it's beginning to consume you as well. And the great irony, of course, is that that other person may have just gone on with life. They might never think about you at all. And yet you're always thinking about them and you become controlled by them. That's the sad and tragic irony of the whole thing. And we've all seen, think of other people because we don't see it in ourselves, but think of other people that you might know who have been consumed with bitterness towards others for what they've done. What happens to those people? Just like what happened with Theoden. They go on a path that takes them down. Have you not seen these people for decades after decades? Something happened 30 years ago. They still bring it up constantly. And when they talk about that person or that situation, there's such a dripping anger to everything they say. It's, there's a cutting knife when they speak about that person. And then it begins to consume in a way that they're always justifying themselves. They always begin then in the rest of life, it starts to take over. They're always playing the victim. They can never take constructive criticism. It begins to consume them in every way so that they begin to push other people away because they're always negative, never trustful, never free. In other words, this single situation has totally consumed them. And like Theoden, it has overthrown their minds. And they become enslaved to it. But Jesus wants to equip us to stand in this battle. That even when others wrong us, we would not be consumed by bitterness. Jesus wants us to be free and not to live in bondage. So then here's the question. How do you get out of that kind of thing? Because, I mean, I've been there many times. It's very hard when situations are running through your mind all the time. And again, for the sake of the argument, we'll just say the other person was totally wrong. Not always the case, but for the sake of the argument. What we need is the voice of truth. We need truth to come from outside ourselves, because inside it's just all messed up. We need Jesus, the true and better Gandalf, to enter into the throne room of our hearts and to release us from the spell. And that's exactly what our merciful and gracious Savior does for us. So how can you get free of this? There's many things that could be said. But one truth that you should buckle on, and I'm trying to choose the easiest and simplest verse to use of all the Bible that can have all the power that you need. And that verse is Colossians 3.13, which simply says, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I want you to notice very carefully, he does not say, forgive because, well, what the other person did to you is not that bad. Jesus never downplays 
the incorrect and wrong things that others may do to us. Again, for the sake of your argument, let's say it's as bad as you imagine it to be. And yet somehow Jesus still says, you're called to forgive. And notice also he doesn't say forgive just because it's the right thing to do. That's true. But the spell of bitterness is so, wrong, so, so powerful in our hearts, we need something more. So he doesn't just say forgive because God said so. That's true enough. No, he rather gives us the power, the voice of truth, to buckle on ourselves, which will then free us, liberate us from the spell of bitterness which so many of us are consumed by. Jesus gives us the ultimate power to forgive. How? you got to go through a struggle. Just like Theoden, even when Gandalf said, I release you from the spell, he went through a great struggle. You and I, in these situations, we have to go through a great struggle. And the great struggle begins, first of all, according to Jesus, by looking at our own sins. If we're to forgive as the Lord forgave us, the assumption behind that is, you and I need forgiveness. That the other people have done wrong things, but we've done wrong things. Our sins are great. So it begins with this great struggle of rather than looking at the other person, of looking at ourselves and counting our sins before God and letting the full weight of those sins come down upon us, where we get to the point where we just say, is there any mercy in God? Can God forgive me of these things? Where you feel the weight of your own sins, and then you remember this gospel, this good news, that God sent Christ to forgive you. In Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant, the one servant who owes a small debt and the other servant who owes this great debt and his great debt is forgiven, then he's to forgive the small debt. That is the point we must get to. We see our debt before God was so great we could never pay it off. But God in his mercy and grace sent Christ to cancel the debt that we owe, that we're set free from the debt we owe. And when your heart gets that, it gets start, the Thanksgiving begins to bubble up. This is where it starts to happen, right? Jesus, thank you that you would do this for me. Father, thank you for your mercy. I sure don't deserve it. I think of this situation. I think of that situation. They were inexcusable, God. I have no justification for them. I did them anyways, and yet you have mercy on me in Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus' mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness towards me. And thanksgiving bubbles up so high in you, it begins to come out in words and phrases. You're just praising God that he would forgive you. That's the power. Now you turn to that other person. That's when you have the strength to forgive them. For truly what they did to you was wrong. Oh, but the, first, the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ to you is so great that when that truth sinks deep into your heart, it releases you from the spell towards that other person, and now you can forgive them. And if you're like me, sometimes you've got to do this again and again and again for the same situation. Maybe I'm just more of a sinner than the rest of you, but I just need to keep coming back to these sometimes, being like, Jesus, I need to forgive again. My heart, I can see my heart's becoming consumed again. It's controlling me. I'm becoming enslaved. I'm being consumed. Jesus, forgive me. When your heart is filled with thanksgiving and this newfound freedom, your heart can forgive others the debt they owe. That's why C.S. Lewis said these famous words, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Do you feel that truth working? Do you even feel the shadows beginning to flee away? When you see how much Christ has forgiven you, when you put on that truth, it frees you to forgive others. And what we do with this single issue of forgiveness, we need to do with all issues in our life. We need truth to speak into every single topic in our lives, whether it be how we handle our money, how are we supposed to be caring for the poor, our sexuality, our relationships with others, our anger, world missions, anything. Every single area needs the truth to come in so that we can stand on the day when we're attacked. So how do you do this? you got to learn the truth. So let's end with a couple quick, very practical situation or applications for you. Let me suggest a few. First, buy an ESV study Bible. Buy an ESV study Bible. So ESV is the English Standard Version, and 
in my view, it's the best study Bible there is. So you got the Bible, and then you got notes underneath it to help you make sense when you don't understand things, introductions to books of the Bible, very helpful in order to understand what you've got. So buy an ESV study Bible. Secondly, set aside a regular time to read your ESV study Bible. I don't know if you're anything like me. If I do not have a dedicated time, life just comes and I just don't read. So you got to have a time that you set aside. For me, it's always just morning first thing. I don't want to start anything else before I'm into the Word and spending time there because the day gets away from me if I don't do it. Whatever the case, pick a time. Third, read good Christian books. Lots of them out there, always happy to help you if you need a recommendation on a particular topic. Uh, we're talking about a lot today, uh, talking about walking and through pain and suffering. Let me recommend to you a couple books. Tim Keller's book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, great book. And then within our own congregation, recently gone home to be with the Lord, Liz Morgan has two books of her own journey that you can pick up. You can talk to Ron. He's always out front. Uh, he'll make sure he gets you some copies. And you can hear her journey and how she walked through her own suffering. Pick up good Christian books. Fill your mind with truth. Fourth, join a community group. As COVID allows, as we figure these things out, other people help us a lot to put on truth. As I said, Corey's song selections this morning, the team, the way they played it, all the people on tech who've made all this happen this morning, they have all enabled me to put truth on. We need other people to help us to put on the belt of truth. And then finally, commit to a Bible-believing church. Central strives to be that, but I know not everyone's going to be at Central forever, and I just, I'm just putting this out there as my heart. If you're not at Central forever, find a church where the Bible is upheld, it's preached, it's taught. This is the part of every single part of the church, not just great stories and, I don't know, tip for the day or something like that. Find a place where you can learn the Bible, and the truth is going to be fastened around your waist constantly in the church that you're a part of. And then that truth fills our heart with thanksgiving to the God who's been so faithful to us and enables us to stand in the difficult warfare of this life. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. So grateful, as I prayed earlier, that you've given it to us, that you've spoken, O oh God. You've revealed yourself to us. You are not a hidden mystery way off outside our universe that we somehow have to figure out, but that you have spoken to us. So you've given us your word. You've taught us truth so that we can navigate the darkness of this world. We can understand things. You've given us your Son, the personification of truth, truth itself. Jesus, we declare you are the truth, and we would listen to you. You are our master. Teach us. Enable us to follow you. Show us in each of our lives where we need to learn truth, that we could be set free from the spells of deception that we know we easily fall prey to, that we easily fall into. Help us to be a church of truth a truth that will bury itself deep in our hearts. It will show itself in love towards others, patience towards others, care towards others, and love toward you. Work the truth in us, we pray. In your name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.